0: I was only going to be here three years because I was going to go to the big time, and Hartford, to me, was not the big time. I was going to work for the Washington Post or the New York Times. Susan Campbell, freelance writer, author. I'm not saying that I would have had to have turned them down had the offer been tendered, but I got, I got hooked on Hartford. I came to Hartford knowing nothing about Connecticut. I could find it on a map barely. And I get here, and I think there's a lot of smart people here and we can figure out these social ills that plague everywhere. Where I didn't feel that way in my hometown and New York just seemed too big and D.C. just seemed too big. So what I've learned in my 5,000 years in journalism here is that nothing just happened. So all the issues that we have now, we built that. But also, we, if we built that, we can dismantle it and build something better. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Disinvested, a podcast about reimagining a city and building a stronger, more inclusive community created by the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. I'm Tyler Johnson.
2: Now, a capital city in crisis. Hartford is addressing
3: the very real possibility of bankruptcy.
0: Connecticut has not had a budget, and the pain is really being felt. Hartford public schools are facing a harsh reality, a budget shortfall. You
1: may have heard about Hartford's recent struggles. Our city and region are suffering from massive disparities, which are holding us back from reaching our full potential. None of these disparities we see today happen by accident. They're the result of decades of policy decisions, structural racism, and people choosing to divest in our capital city and many of its neighborhoods. When you look at the data, these disparities can be narrowed down to three main factors, race, place, and income. America is the land of opportunity, but that opportunity isn't the same for everyone. Your race or ethnicity, how much money you have in the neighborhood where you grow up play a major role in who succeeds and who doesn't. This isn't unique to Greater Hartford, but the differences here are so stark, so evident, that Hartford might just be the perfect microcosm of America. Throughout this podcast series, we'll look at how these disparities play out in a number of ways, and more importantly, what we can do about it. This series isn't about dwelling on our mistakes, it's about looking forward. But before we can talk about solutions, it's important to understand how we got here. Susan Campbell spent 26 years covering the Hartford region as a writer for the Hartford Current. These days, she teaches journalism at the University of New Haven. Her latest book, Frog Hollow, Stories from an American Neighborhood, explores the history of one of Hartford's oldest and most historic neighborhoods, which encompasses the area from Capitol Avenue down to Trinity College.
0: Um, The Frog Hollow neighborhood, it was farmland until about the 1850s and the Park or Hog River went through there, so it was a perfect place for manufacturing. Sharp's Rifle was the first factory there, followed by just a host of incredible factories that turned out everything from sewing machines, bicycles, electric cars before they were cool, tools, everything you can imagine was was created there in Frog Hollow. That's what drew me to the neighborhood because it felt like a microcosm of everything. Basically, every street was paved and every block that was going to be developed was developed by the turn of the last century. And bit by bit, the manufacturers left and some of the original residents stayed. But for the most part, they followed out to their jobs to live in the suburbs. That was the American dream, right? And that didn't just affect frog hollow but it's uniquely obvious there
4: hartford like other connecticut cities developed as a manufacturing powerhouse henry james did call it the richest little city in the country and in hartford's case it had a kind of a layer cake of prosperity It, it had insurance financial sector manufacturing hi i'm tom condon i am a writer for the connecticut mirror all these great manufacturing powerhouses that created these semi-strong, semi-independent cities, um, it went south or it went away. And that has been that has been very difficult to deal with. Middle class people in largely left a lot of the cities, taking part in the great post-war suburbanization, sometimes called sprawl. So it moved in the direction of Connecticut becoming a large suburb with pockets of poverty.
5: Connecticut remains one of the most segregated states in our nation with some of our MSA areas, the Metropolitan
1: Statistical areas being in the top 10. Here's Vanula Darby Hudgens of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center which works to ensure that Connecticut residents have equal access to housing opportunities.
5: And really, we can trace back that racial segregation over 100 years of policy decisions um, and development decisions. So like most northeastern cities, Hartford was developed around industry. Um, And so a lot of the housing stock we see in Hartford is a result of uh, workforce housing. So things like the Colt Factory built housing um, and the old sift mill in the north end built housing. But they only built housing for white workers and they excluded workers of color from this housing, which then forced a concentration of individuals and families of color into a one single neighborhood. In the 1930s, as a result of the Great Depression, there was a tremendous um, risk of what we have come to term or no in the 2008, as the foreclosure crisis, right? And that was going to happen in the 1930s. So the federal government had to figure out a way to, for the first time, enter the housing market and be save homes from foreclosure. They had never done this before, so they didn't know how to do it. And so with um, the Great Depression and with New Deal legislation, we saw the federal government enter into what we know as our traditional 30-year mortgage. But they had to figure out a way to back those mortgages, to know that their investment in homes was secure. So they hired the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was created under the Federal Housing Administration, to grade neighborhoods. And the problem with the grading and what we have known as the consequences of redlining is the neighborhoods were not graded for their access to transit, their access to water, their access to infrastructure, their access to employment. They were not graded for the quality of the housing stock. They were graded on who lived
0: there. This federal agency had representatives who would drive through neighborhoods and they would try to guess, is this a neighborhood where we could write some mortgages? Again, here's Susan Campbell. They drove through neighborhoods like Frog Hollow and they would look around and if the buildings seem a little bit run down, then they would make a little mark on the clipboard. But here's where it gets scary. If they saw an African American make a little mark, if they saw someone who looked like an immigrant, go figure what that is they'd make a little mark. And then the neighborhoods were color-coded. And you've heard of redlining. That's where this comes from. If a neighborhood was colored um, green or blue, then it was absolutely. The chances are you will get your mortgage repaid, banks. You should write mortgages here. If they were yellow, it was more, you might want to think about that because you just might not see that money ever again. If they were red, forget it. Meaning that these people who never got out of their cars sat there and looked around and said, yeah, I don't think so. So that was an incredible divestment of any kind of support for that neighborhood. So when I go to suburbs and I talk about Frog Hollow, that's my message, get out of your car. You have no idea what you're missing.
1: When you look around Hartford, you can see that something has changed. People are tired of all the negativity directed at our capital region, and they've begun to take action. You can see a revitalization happening. Our city is on the rise. What we need now is a vision. We have an opportunity to build something new, to recreate a better Hartford region for the next generation. Jackie Mandyke is the managing director of iQuilt Partnership. She's leading a new initiative called Hartford 400, to envision a different type of city.
6: As you may know, Hartford um, turns 400 in a mere 16 years. So in the year 2035, Hartford's gonna be 400 years old. And how do we want Hartford to look? How do we want it to feel? What kinds of things do we want to accomplish? We're trying to create that North Star for Hartford, not only for Hartford the city, but Hartford the region. You know, Hartford should strive to be the best that it could be. It doesn't have to be another major metropolitan area. It can be different. It can it can be itself. It can be unique. It can be Hartford. I think what people want to see is they want to see that vibrancy. It doesn't have to be 24-7, but they want to see vibrancy. They want to see more small businesses. They recognize the region's wonderful assets as far as its cultural assets. And I think they want to highlight that as far as a region. So I think, you know, vibrancy is probably one of the biggest things that we constantly hear and people
1: really moving together in one direction. To create a vibrant city, we need to fix our economy. Without a thriving economy, it's difficult to address our other challenges. And so that's the subject of our first episode, Economic and Community Development. How do we create an economy that works for everyone?
3: Hi, my name is Jay Williams. I'm the president and CEO of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving.
1: So my view
3: of economic and community development has been shaped and informed by my personal and professional experiences over uh, the last 15 or so years. I started off in this realm in banking. I then had five years of experience as Director of Economic Development in my hometown of Youngstown, Ohio, running and serving as the mayor of a city that had undergone economic upheaval. Prior to arriving at the Hartford Foundation, uh, I spent three years heading up the Economic Development Administration, serving as Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development. All those experiences helped to shape and inform my views. It's impossible to have a vibrant community if a segment of the population is underserved, overlooked, and not connected to the opportunities that exists. There's an axiom that often is cited that says a rising tide raises all boats. Well, that is not the case if you are participating and don't have a boat or if your boat is uh, rattled with uh, disrepair. The notion of being competitive as a region requires us to do everything that we can to ensure that every segment of uh, the community is connected
7: with opportunity. Hello, my name is Eric Johnson. I'm the Director of Development Services for the city of Hartford. How do we make sure that whatever growth trajectory that we're on, there is some equity in that? I always say when you go to people, it used to be what the taxi cab drivers say when you flew into a city. Now it's what the Uber or Lyft drivers say. If the people who are the backbone of your city or your place don't believe in the place, then it can never be great right? And because if you don't see yourself in the change, then either you're going to be continue to be negative, you're going to be disinvested, or you're only going to say bad things. Um, so I think inclusiveness is really about making sure that the diversity of experiences and people that we're trying to you know promote and grow is represented. Because if not, your communities won't be interesting or will be equitable. Nobody wants to be in a place that none of those things.
1: Inclusive economic and community development is one of the pillars of the Hartford Foundation's new strategic plan. A number of studies and reports in recent years have suggested that this is the best way forward.
8: My name is Joseph Perilla. I'm a fellow at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. And in 2017, I led a project called the Inclusive Economic Development Learning Lab. So I think most people want to live in a country. That is equitable and fair because it is simply the right thing to do. But it's also the smart thing to do from an economic competitiveness standpoint. Studies that are measuring uh, both local economies and national economies have found that having too much inequality, and especially too much inequality of opportunity, stifles the productive potential of individuals, which in turn uh, undermines any economies competitiveness and long-run development path. Uh, Economic exclusion limits the productive potential of excluded groups, for sure, um, and therefore the economy as a whole. But the result of that is it raises social and fiscal costs for society that absorb scarce resources that could in turn support investments in really important growth-enhancing areas like education and training and infrastructure and economic and community development. Um, And so if we exclude people, we end up kind of paying for it one way or the other. History provides a really interesting lesson on how bringing previously excluded talent into the economy spurs productivity growth. So if you just look back for much of the 20th century, gender and racial discrimination created barriers to labor market participation for non-white and female Americans, essentially lowering these barriers by extending education and changing social norms and reducing outright discrimination. Some economists have estimated that that has accounted for about one quarter of the nation's per person GDP growth since 1960. And so the question going forward is what barriers and what norms need to continue to change to fully connect people to the economy because we still obviously have barriers that are excluding.
4: Those neighborhoods were prosperous when there were factories in them, when there were jobs. Tom Condon of the Connecticut mayor and and you know it's a, a challenge of imagination how you know how can you get a factory in the north end of Hartford? you know re, you know recreate the work ethic in these neighborhoods that that really is never left. Years ago I did a piece about the community court people would go to the community court and they would be assigned to work crews You'd be out cleaning the city or sweeping the streets or whatever. And a lot of times somebody would finish, you know, you'd get two weeks on the, on the crew. And in the third week, people would come back. They just wanted to work. I think most people want to work. That is really the key. If we can get jobs into distressed neighborhoods, they won't be distressed anymore.
3: All economic development is community development, but not all community development is economic development.
1: Once again, here is Hartford Foundation for Public Giving President Jay Williams. With economic development, it is about building the
3: capacity of a region to attract private investment. It is about lowering transaction costs. It is about trying to create uh, a place where people have opportunity to uh, make their way in life, whether it's through gainful employment, whether it's through supporting entrepreneurship, any number of things. Community development expands even more broadly. With community development, you can talk about things like education uh, and housing uh, and other issues that are important to the quality of life.
9: My name is Aaron Kempel. I'm the executive director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. I think one of the most important things that people don't realize is how much housing affects every part of someone's life. When people think about all of the other topics that you've mentioned, education, arts and culture, jobs, um, safety, housing is at the base of
1: all of that. And we have to invest both in our cities and in our suburbs. One way we can boost communities is by providing safe and quality, affordable housing. Here's Erin Kempel and Fanula Darby Hudgens of Connecticut Fair Housing Center.
9: So today, we don't see the kinds of explicit discrimination that we saw in the past where there were maps with red lines in them. There are no classified ads that have four Negroes, four whites.
5: Housing discrimination is really very, very hidden um, and can be really challenging to identify. So it could be as simple as a family with a disabled son Seeking a unit somewhere, and that landlord saying, I don't know if this unit's going to be good for your child. We also see housing discrimination um, against families using any sort of a subsidy, known as source of income discrimination. One of the things that would make a big
9: difference in promoting integration is to get rid of a lot of the exclusionary zoning that we see.
5: Zoning is definitely a way that we keep neighborhoods. Um, racially segregated. If we don't provide for a diversity of housing types within neighborhoods, um, then we're not going to be able to provide for a diversity of families in neighborhoods.
9: The way we're seeing redlining today is that banks have traditionally never been in neighborhoods of color. They've never lent there, they don't have branches there, or they're not advertising to neighborhoods of color. And so they're not saying we're not lending here because of who lives here, but they're also not doing anything to overcome past patterns of discrimination. HUD has found that only 17% of people who experience discrimination report it, and the reason that they don't report it is because they either don't know that it's illegal, or they don't know where to report it. We have attorneys on staff who can represent people either in administrative complaint or in court.
10: So there are disparities within Hartford, but then the disparities between Hartford and the suburbs are even greater.
1: Jim Haran is the executive director of LISC Hartford, which works to revitalize local neighborhoods.
10: Uh, For example, the city of Hartford has a poverty rate of about 31 percent whereas the suburbs have a poverty rate of just 8%. Frequently, housing is the biggest single expense that people have. So, when you have a place, a city like Hartford which has a poverty rate of 31%, there's a lot of people who cannot afford a home by themselves without subsidy or without some way to to pay for it. One of Lisks critical Focus areas is in trying to provide affordable housing. And often that means deed restricted affordable housing, meaning that it's going to remain affordable for years to come. We want to make sure that residents are not displaced so that, for example, residents of Frog Hollow who have lived there for decades will still be able to live there. And so having that deed restricted affordable housing is the single best way to make sure that happens.
2: As a region with affordable housing, I'd say we're not doing very well. Um, All of our affordable housing, or the vast majority of our affordable housing, is really concentrated in our urban centers.
1: Rex Fowler is the chief executive officer of the Hartford Community Loan Fund, a nonprofit that provides financial services that benefit low-wealth residents of Hartford.
2: So there's very uh, limited access to affordable housing if you go into some of our more affluent suburbs. From a city perspective, um, Hartford has the greatest concentration of deed-restricted affordable housing of any city in the state. Quality is another question. The quality of that affordable housing in the city um, definitely has some room for improvement, I think. I was on a a blight task force uh, that was convened uh, between the last administration and this one, and one of the recommendations we had to better deal with blight in the city of Hartford was we need to be able to hold someone accountable here at the city. And uh, to the mayor's credit, he uh, hired a director of blight enforcement. And I think we've seen some real good strides in the last two years under that focused effort.
11: My name is Laura Settlemeyer. I am the director of blight remediation for the city of Hartford and the chairperson of the Hartford Land Bank. So I, in fact, do not like the word blight for a number of reasons. Uh, one because of the history of the term and how it has uh, been used to justify uh, racist and other problematic policies. Uh, The other reason I don't like the word is because it means something different to everybody who uses it. The term comes to us from biology. It is cancer in plants, essentially. That blight is plant cancer. What I focus on is properties that have been so neglected as to deteriorate the social fabric of the community and neighborhood on uh, the same street right next door on the same block we set out to say from the beginning we're envisioning a hartford where no neighborhood has blight if that's our vision and that's our goal we really need to look at what incentives our policies and systems are creating and what incentives are they not creating. What is causing the blight? Is is it an owner doesn't have the resources she needs? And if so, let's connect that owner to the resources so that she can fix up her property. Or is it an owner that is, again, taking advantage of the situation, taking advantage of a downturn in the market and trying to invest as little as possible until the market turns? Which type of owner are are we dealing with here? And it goes to quality of life. These buildings have been shown to, you know, attract more crime. When we're talking about abandoned structures can be fire hazards. You know, we're not doing this to bring new residents in. We're doing this because we believe our residents, our current residents of Hartford, deserve safe, healthy, quality housing and neighborhoods. I just wanna say, I don't know if there'll be a way to work this in, but I just wanna say, cause I often don't get to say this. I often just jump right into the work of light remediation, but I really love being, living and working in Hartford. Um, it's not, I, I had no idea when I set out that I'd end up in Hartford, Connecticut. And I've just, I'm just, I'm just really happy to, to be here.
12: A lot of folks might think a woman like me couldn't live in the North End, you know. They're like, oh my God, you know.
1: That's Kathleen Maldonado. She's a resident of the Clay Arsenal neighborhood in Hartford's North End. No area of Hartford has seen more disinvestment over the past 60 years than the North End. When you talk to the residents of this area, they often feel forgotten.
12: There's a lot of biases from the north end, like, you know, we're all on ABT, we're all on housing, we're all on Section 8, none of us contribute, Uh, which is not true because, you know, I'm not a recipient of state assistance. Uh, So I'm a contributor actually to my city. I I work in downtown Hartford and um, I do what I have to do because I love this city and and I, I, I don't want to say I'm stuck here, but this is where I was born. I was born on William Street. Like, you know, this is this is my city. Like, my mom is still here. I'm not leaving my mom. So it's just like, why, why are they not including us in everything that's happening in the city?
2: I moved up to the North End about 16 years ago, and um, I had co-founded, as a volunteer, I'd co-founded a... Uh, ministry in the North End with some friends of mine that had been uh, going for about six or seven years at the time.
1: Rex Fowler of the Hartford Community Loan Fund.
2: I lived there for a year and it was like getting a master's degree, I feel like, in urban ministry. The residents of the North End have just really um, welcomed me like I've never been welcomed by a community before. And, you know, I hope to live the rest of my life and die in the North End just because I have such a... um, I just love living where I live. And so it's, yeah, I'm a minority, but that's not a bad experience to have as a white person of privilege. Um, so it's really helped me, I think, focus our organization more around the needs of my neighbors in the community. The majority of our loans in Hartford are in the uh, city's North End neighborhood. And that's historically been a neighborhood that's been disinvested. Um, We have rehabbed about 200 properties in the city of Hartford. We have really low defaults, which shows that low-income people can pay back loans just as well as high-income people. That's part of our goal is to help low-wealth Hartford residents increase their wealth and kind of reduce those inequities that we see in the region.
1: Inclusive economic and community development means that we need to start investing in overlooked neighborhoods. One way to do that is through nonprofits like the Hartford Community Loan Fund. Another solution is a practice known as impact investing. The Hartford Foundation for Public Giving recently launched a subsidiary called HFPG Impact Greater Hartford to make impact investments in neighborhoods where they are needed most. Alan Matamana is a partner at Fairview Capital and a member of our HFPG Impact Committee.
13: Yeah, so impact investing, I think if you looked at a classical definition, it it consists of two parts, right? So the first part is uh, generating a financial return. And in that sense, it's very similar to regular investing. But the other piece of impact investing is generating some sort of uh, either social, environmental, or economic good. When community foundations do it, particularly foundations like the Harvard Foundation, what they're trying to do is align that impact piece, the second piece of the, of the equation, with their mission. I, I, I do this for a living. I'm an investor for a living. And I can tell you that capital is typically uh, going to go to projects that have the highest return for the least amount of risk. The problem is in communities, uh, and particularly neighborhoods, there are some benefits that are not financial, All those social benefits are not gonna show up on an investor's profit and loss statement, but they're hugely important. And if there was a way you could quantify all those social benefits and combine it with a financial return, that's a real win. But I think it's also about who's making these investments in the first place. The best people to make an investment in a neighborhood are the people in the neighborhood themselves. Uh, They're the most knowledgeable. They have the most at stake. And if the investment starts to go sideways uh, for any number of reasons, they can bring the stakeholders in the community to bear. But if there's no one in the neighborhood that has the capital, all those things I just mentioned are just untapped potential.
7: The boogeyman idea of like community engagement, like what is that, what does that mean?
1: Eric Johnson is the Director of Development Services for the city of Hartford.
7: It's really kind of this graduated idea that we should have conversations with our neighbors about what's important to them and what do they want to see. I'm a planner by vocation right? And so part of my job is to plan things. And sometimes we get ahead of our skis in thinking that we can plan the right things for people based upon what we want them to be.
10: Hartford has a pretty vibrant network of neighborhood revitalization zones all around the city and different groups of residents who are engaged. And I think that's the single best mechanism in Hartford to ensure that residents are engaged.
1: Here again is Jim Haran of LISC.
10: I think too, though, residents often feel like they've been burned. You know, they've made Promises have been made and not kept. So part of what LISC needs to do and the Hartford Foundation and the city and other partners is that we really need to work closely with residents, listen to them and take direction from them as we go along.
12: I don't want anybody bad-mouthing my zip code, Upper Albany, like we're doing it. You know, it's a little messy right now, but we're getting there. And, And there's so much opportunity here, so much happening and the residents that live here we do care and we're not giving up on our zip code. We want more, we want more and you're not gonna forget us, we are here. Uh, yeah, don't talk about my North End.
3: Also new tonight, big news for United Technologies, but a blow for the state of Connecticut. UTC will move its corporate headquarters to Massachusetts, taking roughly 100 high-paying jobs with it.
0: Well, the continues in Windsor over Konica Minolta's plan to move hundreds of jobs to another state. It is certainly
1: a blow to the town. In addition to housing and neighborhood investment, another way to improve our economy is to help with the development of small businesses. There have been some big news stories about companies leaving Connecticut in recent years. Perhaps the most notable was the loss of General Electric, which announced in 2016 that it was moving from Fairfield to Boston. These departures are devastating, not only for the actual job losses, but also for the morale of our state. Building up a strong small business culture will add vibrancy to our communities and will make our economy more sustainable in the future. Hi my name is Deverly Sasitsky.
14: I am the executive director of Makerspace CT. The Makerspace is my 33rd startup. I am what is often referred to as a serial entrepreneur. and to understand the trajectory of what that means, you have to go back probably to you know the 70s and 80s when our culture was just starting to recognize women um, for things other than domestic engineering. At that point, it was definitely difficult being a woman in the workplace. We did not know that our place was sustainable. We thought we were just here temporarily. Um, and so women weren't as gracious or supporting of other women then. They would just as soon cut you out of the workplace so that they could head their way up to the glass ceiling where they got their head smacked. Um, it has changed certainly over the years. There's a whole movement to support women To support minorities, Um, we're now looking at the 49% majority saying, what about me? So historically for women,
15: it
1: just hasn't been easy. (laughs) That's Maraima Gutierrez, Assistant District Director for Economic Development for the United States Small Business Administration.
15: So most of the barriers began with access to capital. In our lifespan, it wasn't until 1988 when the Women's Business Ownership Act put an end to laws that required women to have to have male relatives sign business loans. So think of it, if you wanted access to capital, you needed a small business loan, and perhaps you were not married, uh, you might have to bring in your nephew, who's 17 years old, to co-sign for you for a small business loan. You know, when you
1: start with those type of barriers... It's like, okay, now we're playing catch-up. Women and minority business owners have been constantly overlooked in the past. If we invest in them, there's a massive potential for growth.
15: As of January 2017, there's an estimated 116 million women-owned businesses in the United States. So that's why it's important that we level the playing field. If you look at statistics, you know, you just have to Google, you know, what is the fastest growing, you know, industry, you know, who are the folks that are opening businesses at a higher rate, and you see that it is women and minorities. I believe that economic development institutions are paying attention to that. How can the region better support us? Well, funding and entrepreneurial development are key, right? As well as access to capital. So access to capital is really important. You want our small business owners to be as educated as possible, as prepared as possible, when venturing into the world of entrepreneurship, set up our small business owners, you know, to succeed from the get-go.
1: We know that small businesses are the heart of of our economy. Fernando Rosa is the president and CEO of Headco Inc., a community development organization that works to develop, sustain, and grow businesses. We asked him about the ripple effect of building up small businesses in underserved communities.
16: First of all, you have the job creation. You have the possibility of reducing dependency on social service. Uh, that is called creating community wealth, you know, where you're developing uh, small business. You're developing, uh, you're generating monies and uh, funds for that particular community. Uh, you're creating a self-esteem. It also increases increasing the disposable income. And with that comes improving housing edu- and education. So there is a tremendous effect as you create the small business. As we continue to develop them and improve them, well, the small business are the backbone of the of the community. Uh, they create most of the jobs, especially the day-to-day jobs in the neighborhood. Uh, it is the small business that creates the quality of life in the in the cities that make them vibrant. I envision a great Hartford that is vibrant, that has many activities. You know, as uh, population continues to grow and move into downtown. I think that is a, an expansion of the smaller businesses needed. Uh, the restaurants, the activities, are bringing everything together. I am optimistic. We have gone through some difficult challenges. The city still faces some very difficult challenges, but the optimism is there. Many of us been around for many years. I've been around for many years. I grew up practically in this city, uh, we believe in a city. Upper
17: Albany in the latter part of the 1920s and 30s was a very bustling community. It was a predominantly a Jewish community. It had peddlers going up and down the street and streetcarts. Sometime into the 50s it had trolleys. And, of course, Hartford was a bustling city.
1: Marilyn Reese is the executive director of Upper Albany Main Street, the Upper Albany neighborhood went through many of the same struggles as other neighborhoods we mentioned earlier. Crime rates rose as the neighborhood saw massive disinvestment. Maryland was hired in 2000 to help revitalize the neighborhood by focusing on the Main Street Corridor and its small businesses. They've seen considerable improvement in the past few years with remodeled storefronts, new development, and an increase in jobs. Given the
17: population of Upper Albany, All of the businesses that we work with are minority-owned businesses. We work with them predominantly to increase traffic to their business and to make them economically profitable. We have 22,000 cars going up and down Albany Avenue on a daily basis. In any other community, people would dive to have that type of traffic. These business owners have pride. They have a product. It is the only neighborhood open in Hartford... After five o'clock, developing Albany Avenue into a vibrant commercial corridor, it helps the residents of downtown as well. And it also provides employment.
1: In a future episode of this podcast, we'll look at workforce development and how we can help individuals find good paying, meaningful careers. When thinking about macroeconomic development... We can help create new businesses by supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs. Once again, Debra Lee Sositsky of Makerspace CT. We have a facility that's over
14: 20,000 square feet downstairs, which encompasses all sorts of traditional skills as well as industry 4.0 manufacturing, machining, metal fabrication, welding, 3D printing, the internet of things. Customers and consumers are really educated. If they don't find the product they want, they will create it. They're going to advertise their product directly to the consumer. They're going to customize their product. That's a lot different than what we are used to and what we've seen for years. Being a culture of conspicuous consumption is not as enchanting and as rewarding fiscally as being a culture of innovation and creation. Our hope when people are working downstairs on projects is that they can form a company and work with one another and support one another and we wanna foster those kinds of interrelationships and more importantly, businesses in the Hartford area.
1: If you look around Hartford and the surrounding suburbs, you'll see a number of similar challenges. But you can also find plenty of success stories. Peter Gillespie is the economic and planning director for the town of Wethersfield, a suburb directly bordering Hartford to the south that's seen a lot of recent growth.
18: Wethersfield has a real strong sense of community. Um, There are generations and generations of families that stay in the community. Their children come back to the community, so it has that strong uh, connectivity to the past. It's also a very uh, historic uh, community. Um, heritage. The town's heritage is a very important part of what I do. Uh, we try and maintain and enhance that. Right now, uh, we've seen a huge increase in the amount of residential activity going on in the town. It, it rivals any activity we've had in the last 25 years. We have, I think, laid the groundwork for some of that. But I, you know, I, I never take credit for anything that I've done. It's a community effort. The key is identifying the, the right stakeholders uh, and making sure they have a seat at the table and, and uh, that there's meaningful public involvement. It can be painful. Uh, it can be time-consuming, but it's at the end, it's uh, it's worth the effort.
10: It's complicated to run a city, and it's complicated to turn around a uh, a city that has a lot of poverty and a lot of disinvestment, and to attract new investment. Jim
1: Horan of Lisk Hartford.
10: New Haven. I worked for Mayor DiStefano, uh Mayor John Stefano, years ago in New Haven. And I think New Haven really did a terrific job of doing that. And I think that that's been happening in Hartford as well because the leadership uh, from the mayor is critical and then the people that the mayor appoints. So that's one factor. Another big factor is investment from corporations, from foundations, uh, from others. That is, is really critical. Collaboration is key and no one group, uh, no one person can create the differences that are needed. Everybody has a, a part to play and everybody can make a difference, but it's really by working together that the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts.
1: The idea of better collaboration is something that came up frequently in our interviews. If we want to be successful in the modern economy, if we want to create an economy that works for everyone, the land of steady habits is going to need to embrace a new mindset. And we need to do it quickly because we're facing a unique set of challenges. Here's Tom Condon of the Connecticut Mirror.
4: Hartford doesn't have enough land to exist under a property tax system. You can't succeed under a property tax system if you don't have any property. Now, Hartford's only 18 square miles to begin with, and 59% of it is off the grand list. And so Hartford is forced to charge high taxes, which in turn drives businesses out of the city. Hartford has the highest commercial tax rate in the state.
19: The bottom line is Connecticut is 35 or 40% dependent on property taxes of all taxes.
1: Here's Lyle Ray, Executive Director of the Capital Region Council of
19: Governments. Way overrepresented nationally. Most places have, I don't know, 20.2. It's not growing very much. Uh, So if you look at Hartford right now, it's half what it was 25 years ago. Oops. So you can't have your revenue system at half uh, what you were 25 years ago because every year your costs go up. One of the things that's very interesting when you do the uh, traditional strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, uh, the strengths list here is absolutely amazing. And so we have amazing cultural bases. We have uh, higher education bases. Uh, You know, we're 40 minutes to a, you know, top five ranked university in the world. And there's a whole raft of stuff here. You know, the question is, how do we leverage those to get the best bang for the buck? And I think we have a lot of work to do. The real issue is economies of scale. We have uh, more than 100 911 call centers in the state, and Houston, Texas has the same population as one. Guess who has a better system that costs a lot less money? We're trying to find all those places where we can get a lot better at providing better services at a lower cost by uh, having a bigger scale.
1: One thing we haven't mentioned yet is transportation. We'll cover this more in an upcoming episode, but it's worth mentioning now because transportation is vital to the modern economy and workforce. And it's an area that requires working together as a region.
19: And we have better, you know, better transportation systems. It's easier to get stuff done. And that's, I think, the critical aspect of transportation. We've been sort of a driver die system for a while. Uh, we've really got to get way beyond the driver die system of uh, transportation. And we've made a lot of progress, both with CT Fast Track and CT Rail. Uh, $1.2 billion to get all costs to get reconnected to uh, Boston by rail on an hourly basis, sounds like a lot of money. It's not. Highway out the door here of the viaduct plus the interchange on I-91 and I-94 would be, I don't know, five to seven billion. If you look at the uh, increased real estate value and increased real estate taxes, we could do the math on when you get the money back. And then frankly, it's also important for attracting the next generation of workforce. Well, I mean, the good news and the bad news. Uh, the good news is uh, Connecticut's been rich for 150 years. It's been a very affluent state. The bad news is it's rich for 150 years. The competitors we have, the Colorados, the Minnesotas, the Michigans, were poor, had no money, and they, they're scrappy. We're not scrappy. We haven't been scrappy for a long time. And so places like Washington State have vastly lower taxes, vastly lower costly government. It's a very different deal. But they are, somehow they're scrappy and make things happen. Entrepreneurship, innovation—all those things come out of scrappiness. We need to find our edge again.
4: You know, we have all these—you know—169 towns in Connecticut, cities and towns. And I think everybody agrees that if Connecticut were founded, uh, you know, next week it would not be with 169 towns. You know, it might be with—you know—five or something. You know, five or so, you know uh, yeah, or a metro, some kind of metro government, right? It would save. One study estimated you would save about 20 percent. Of administrative costs. The better advantage, I think, is in economic development. Brookings did a study that showed that regions are really what drive the national economy. It, it is not cities necessarily and it's not states' regions. Regions are economic engines. Well, but the regions have to be cohesive, they have to work together.
8: The reality is that the economy doesn't really respect those boundaries. So you may live in one town, work in another, go enjoy an amenity in a third town.
1: That's Joseph Perilla of the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program.
8: And as a result, each of those jurisdictions are essentially tied to the fates of the broader region. There's actually strong evidence that the more politically fragmented a region is, the lower its overall economic productivity. That fragmentation perhaps represents something about society in the sense that people want to not live near certain groups or they really want to live near people who are the same socioeconomic status as them or the same race. Or if we um, let some of those people into our community, then it will be undermined in some way. And so really, you know, the fragmentation is perhaps a, a reflection of social fragmentation. If you're in a region where those conditions are really, really strong, it becomes really hard politically to make shared investments.
7: To tell the Hartford story is to tell a Connecticut story. And Connecticut does a terrible job of telling its story.
1: Here again is Eric Johnson.
7: Right, well we're expensive and we're not blah, blah, blah. But we have an amazing quality of life. And it's, you know, you, we got water, we got mountains, we have hiking trails, we have kind of great corporate partners. And I'm a fall guy, so this is like the best season ever. And I I think we, generally speaking, do a a bad job of telling people how good we are.
4: You know, there's been no thought that I know of, no vision. What what do we want Connecticut to be? I mean, do we want it to be a a big suburb with a few pockets of poverty. We want it to be something else. We we really could use, Connecticut could use a vision of what, what, what it is we want the state to be. And then if we had that, we could reduce it to a plan and then execute the plan. Jackie Mandyke is hoping that
1: the Hartford 400 project will be that vision. I think this is Hartford's time. And I
6: think if you look at over the last 10 years, I've been working in Hartford for now almost 25 years. And I think if you look at the last 10 years, it's been the most transformative time that we have seen in a long, long time. And I think we're definitely on an uphill. The momentum is definitely moving forward. You know, by the time we're 2035, what does it mean to have a society that's more equitable? But what does that mean? It sounds really good, but what does a society that's more equitable really mean? And How do you bring different organizations, entities, governments, um, for-profit, businesses, how do you bring them together to have a discussion to move forward? How do you bring people together to take two and two and get way more than four? This is about allowing people and giving people the time and the privilege to go ahead and dream again and say it's okay to dream again. And and what do you really want? I, I think it's a
3: critical moment In a lot of respects, I think it's a critical, we stand at a critical juncture, you know, in the conversation that is happening uh, at the national level, at the state level, at the regional level, at the city level, and in our own existence. Uh, Again, having been around for over 94 years.
1: Jay Williams, president of the Hartford Foundation.
3: I hope in 15 or 20 years that we would be in a community that understands and has connected the assets and the opportunities uh, for individuals who had for far too long been underserved and overlooked. Uh, A community that is learning uh, and proud of uh, its history, but yet and still uh, taking on the, the, the challenges of making sure that we're inclusive. We talked about uh, the opportunities to individuals, whether they're choosing to relocate from a much larger area, from another country altogether, or individuals who are here that have choices to live anywhere else on this planet, but saying, you know what, Uh, we're choosing to still reside in Hartford for these reasons, whatever those reasons
1: happen to be to those members of the community. Nearly everyone we spoke with had a vision for the future of Greater Hartford. But the thing that kept coming up over and over was the need to build stronger communities and repair our fractured social bonds. We'll leave you with Alan Matamana of Fairview Capital, whose thoughts were echoed by a number of other people.
13: I'd like to see a Hartford where we actually truly talk about one Hartford. A Hartford where everyone in the city feels connected. Uh, and I mean truly connected. A Hartford where people from the communities don't look at Hartford as a border. Uh, A Hartford where the greater Hartford communities have invested in the city, not just financially, but from a social perspective as well.
16: Restless as a tumbleweed
1: Thanks for listening to Disinvested. I'm Tyler Johnson. In the coming weeks, we'll explore some of the other issues affecting Greater Hartford, including community safety, education, workforce development, re-entry, food insecurity, arts and culture, and more. We hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends.
13: This podcast
1: is created by the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, produced by Tom Zeleznack, Steph McGillivary, Michaela Mandegral and Autumn Gordon-Chow. Music provided by Among the Acres. Special thanks to everyone who appeared in this episode. The Hartford Foundation supports many of the organizations featured in this episode through grants, capacity building, and more. Visit hfpg.org to learn more.